There's no second act, so. All righty. Yeah, we're in Acts, but we're talking about Peter, so that's probably the reason why my brain went straight to second Peter. Uh, We are talking about Peter today, and Peter's first sermon that we see given here in Acts. It starts in chapter 2, verse 14, and if you remember, this is after the the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is after the Pentecost. This is during Pentecost. This is uh, the upper room, and they go out into the group of people there who are all Jews, and they hear everybody all speaking a language that they can all understand, and it says they weren't amazed Verse 12, they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, what meaneth this? And then others mocking said, these men are full of new wine. These these guys are drunk. And so this is what we see that brought about Peter's sermon. I don't know about your Bible, but my Bible labels it Peter's sermon. Um, I would call it Peter's first sermon, but... Yeah, this is Peter's sermon, and Peter starts out with, but Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words, for these are not drunken as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. And so, like I said, Peter first addresses the whole, and I personally think he's laughing at this point in time. I think I would be. Sometimes I, I think we have a tendency to... Um, maybe I shouldn't say antiseptically, but I can't come up with the right word. You, you understand that the reason why we as humans who are created by God have humor is because God gave it to us, right? Which means God has a sense of humor. You guys are all there, right? You with me? Being able to laugh is an amazing thing, isn't it? And I really think Peter's here is laughing. I've I've got to admit, I think Peter is laughing to himself and he's laughing to these people. Yeah, right, these guys are drunk. Sure they are. Come on, guys. It's just the morning. They haven't had time to get drunk yet is the implication under the circumstances. And he he is just rebutting their accusation. It's the third hour of the day. That's nine in the morning. It's nine in the morning. They're not drunk yet. They they haven't had time to get drunk yet. And then he brings in the discussion about Joel 2 from the prophet Joel. A Pentecost is going to fulfill a prophecy that Joel in the Old Testament gave. And yes, the prophecy is only partially fulfilled at this point. The rest of this prophecy in Joel is actually going to be fulfilled later during the time of the tribulation, during the time of the day of the Lord. But there is some of this that is going to be fulfilled here. And it shall come to pass in the last day, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens, I will pour out in those days of my spirit and they shall prophesy. And this is This is an important note because before this point in time, you had specific prophets and it was their job to speak for God. And at this point in time, he is saying, listen, I'm going to pour out my spirit on a bunch of people, 
normal people, they're going to be able to understand, read and understand and speak for God. I, I'm not a prophet. You, you guys get that, right? Yeah, I, I do not want to be taken out and stoned if I make a mistake here. So please know I'm not the prophet nor the son of a prophet. All right? Which if you in the Old Testament prophets, if you ever got anything wrong, they took you out and stoned you. I, I do not claim to be a prophet. Yet I am, I am here reading out of the scriptures and we are talking about these things. It, they prophesy. Your sons, your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens, I will pour out in those days of my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I shall show wonders in heavens above and signs in the earth beneath blood and fire and vapor of smoke. And yes, that's the day of the Lord again. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come again. That is the, that is during the tribulation period. That is future to us. That is during the end. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then he, he starts into this discussion that just like the prophets of old, why did, and I, I have to ask this question, and you've probably heard me ask it before, so just tell me you've heard me ask it before, but why did prophets, why were prophets capable of telling you the future? Why were prophets capable of doing the things that they did for prophecies? For the most part, one of the main reasons that the Bible gives. Well, yes, but what was the point? What does the Bible say the point of prophets being able, in many cases, to prophesy was. And I'm serious. This is Old Testament. What was the point? I mean, we think of them. Yeah, prophets can tell us the future. Prophets can do these different things. But what was the point? And the Bible actually tells us, back in the Old Testament, that a lot of the point was, if you wanted proof that this came from God, you would have someone who could, do so, could tell you something that only God could tell you. Which is the reason why if a prophet ever got it wrong, if a prophet prophesied something and he got it wrong, God said, that person is a false prophet because only a prophet, a prophet from me will never get it wrong. Take those guys outside and stone them. Get rid of them. Don't listen to them. You were not allowed to get it wrong because getting it right meant you were from God and getting it wrong meant you weren't. One of the differences then was they didn't have a complete copy of the scripture. And today we have a complete copy of the scripture that we're using. And so consequently, if you want to know whether or not what I'm telling you is the truth from Scripture, you know what you can do. You can go read it. You don't need me to just read it from the pulpit. I'm hoping that you guys read it for yourself. I tell this again to my teenagers all of the time. Please, go read your Bibles. Please, go study your Bibles. The Bible's very clear. Study to show thyself approved. Study. Please go be studying it yourself. Go check it out yourself. 
And Peter is going to use here, though, that argument that how did you know that Christ was the Messiah? He's making the point in this entire sermon that Jesus is the Messiah. And I do want to make the point. I, I, you just heard me say Christ is the Messiah. That's kind of redundant. You do, you do realize that the word Christos, which is the Greek word for Messiah, and the word Messiahs, which is the Hebrew word for Messiah, are the same word. They're just in two different languages. Jesus was the Messiah, and that's his point here. And he is going to make that point here in 22. He says, ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Peter says, listen, Jesus was the Messiah because you had certain things the Messiah was supposed to do and he did them. The Messiah was supposed to give sight to the blind. Did you notice that that was a specific trait of the Messiah? He was supposed to give sight into the blind. And Jesus gave sight to the blind, so you guys should have realized when you saw it that this guy is the Messiah. You have a list of this is what the Messiah does, and that's what Jesus does, so that clearly makes him the Messiah. And he says, listen, you guys know this. This isn't something that happened with nobody figuring it out. This wasn't something that happened in a back room. Sorry, there are some... Um, religions out there. I don't exactly want to use certain names. So give me who claim, you know, I saw these golden plates and I saw these golden plates and the two people saw them and nobody else got to see them and they were invisible and everybody else didn't get. This wasn't like that. Jesus did this stuff in front of everybody. This wasn't like a couple of people in a back room saw it happen. He did it in front of everyone. And he did it over and over and over again in front of everyone. Being proof that he was, in fact, the Messiah. And then he goes on to say, verse 23, Him being delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Ooh, that's tough. He says to the Jews, folks, this was God's plan all along, but that doesn't absolve you of the fact that you did it. In God's plan was Christ being crucified, but you guys still did it. You took and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. It, it was in God's foreknowledge, God's counsel. God knew it was going to happen. Christ dying on the cross allows for us to be saved from our sins. But that doesn't absolve you from the fact that your wicked hand still took and did it. And then he's going to go into a section, 25 through 35, really where he is going to provide a set of proofs of the Lord's 
resurrection of the Lord being the Messiah. He is going to go through this here in verse 25 through 35. Verse 24 says, whom God hath raised up, raised up having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. So verse 24, he's going to start into this passage. Resurrection's a fundamental doctrine. If you don't believe in resurrection, you don't believe in Christ. Christianity in general. And he says, in, he says here, listen, Christ was God and therefore it was impossible. It wasn't just he was resurrected. It was impossible for death to keep that hold on him because he was the Messiah. He was God. The rest of us, when we die, death can keep hold on us pretty well. But he was the Messiah and it was impossible. And he's going to then prove it, verse 25. So he's going to start out with this Psalm 16 passage which is uh, sometimes called David's tomb passage, which really runs about 25 through 31. And he says, For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, my tongue was glad. Moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life, Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried. And his sepulcher is with us unto this day. You can go find where David is buried is what he's trying to say. You want to go visit the tomb? Feel free to go right ahead. David is dead. David is Dead. So what in the world is David talking about if David is talking about him not being dead? If it's scripture and David says, listen, the Holy One doesn't see corruption. The Holy One isn't dead. Is David talking about himself? No. David can't be talking about himself because David is, come on, say it with me now, dead. David is dead. And Peter makes that point. You guys read this passage and you say, David is saying the joys of resurrection, the joys of coming back to life, you didn't leave me in the grave. But David is still in the grave. And frankly, Peter is saying, listen, you know where that grave is? We can go find that. We can go find where he was buried. He's still there. Now, one of these days he'll be resurrected, but obviously he wasn't at this point in time. Verse 30, therefore being a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ, the Messiah, to sit on his throne. He seeing this before spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. So point one, David said Christ would be resurrected. You believe in David? You believe that Christ should be resurrected. That is his first point. Point two, 32. This one's a short one. This Jesus hath God raised up, 
whereof we all are witnesses. There are lots and lots and lots of people out there who have seen Jesus alive. What would they get for not believing it? You know, I've always had that argument. People want to argue about the resurrection and they want to say, oh, well, Jesus didn't come back to the dead. That was just faked by the apostles. You've heard that one? I know people who believe that. Well, some, some it's a swoon theory, but a lot of people even today say Jesus died. He was buried and the, and the apostles all faked it. Now, let me ask you a question. If faking Jesus coming back to life meant that you were going to be tortured and murdered, treated the way you were by all of those people, and you personally were going to get nothing out of it. Why would you do that? What possible reason would you have? It doesn't make any sense. And Peter here says it's just not the twelve. You know how we talked about how Jesus did all this stuff out in public and everybody saw him do all these miracles? By the by, Jesus was just taken up in a crowd of people. It's not like it's just the twelve. There's lots and lots and lots of people who saw it. Bunches of witnesses, including maybe, as he said, some of you. We all are witnesses. Verse 33, so this was his next one. Therefore being, by, therefore being by the right hand of God, exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. And you guys were wondering about the fact that we have all of these people who are able to speak languages and you can hear and it makes no sense whatsoever. You, do you want to know why? Because Christ is on the right hand of the Father and he gave us this ability so that we could tell you. So not only were we witnesses, you wanted to know why we were in this situation and why it's weird that this group of people who were all from the same place and didn't know these languages could all speak a language that you could all hear. That's a miracle, people. And that miracle is because the Holy Spirit, which was promised to us, he has shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. And then he ends it with David again. For David is not ascended in the heavens, but he saith himself, the Lord said unto my, right, unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. So again, Psalm 110.1, this is the classic messianic psalm. Psalm 110.1, who's this talking about? David wasn't resurrected. David didn't ascend in heaven, but the Messiah did. And there's a prophecy that he's going to. David was dead and buried. He couldn't have been referring to himself. He had to be writing about the Messiah. He had to be writing about the resurrection. We know in every one of these cases that, that this is the way that it was. You believe in David, you've got to believe in Christ. I provided you all of the witnesses you need. And he says in verse 36, which is the conclusion of the argument, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ, Messiah. He's Lord, he's kurios in Greek, 
That's a reference to Christ, but also a reference to God the Father, meaning it's an affirmation of Christ's deity. Christ is God and Messiah. And he uses that same in 21, 34, 39. And then we get to 37. And it says, now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. I think pricked is a little mild in our modern language. The literal word in Greek basically means to pierce you all the way through with something. Like to go in one side and out the other side. When I think pricked, I think, you know. And the word that's translated here literally in Greek basically means to stab you through so that you could be hung up on a pole if you wanted to be hung up on a pole with it through you. So um, it's just a trick of the way the language has changed since the King James was written. The word pricked here, pierced all the way through. The convicting work in their hearts was so great. They have a ring of desperation and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? We are Jews. We have killed our Messiah. Where do we go from here? Are we done? And I really feel like that's exactly what they are saying to Peter at this point in time. You've made a point. You've proved your point to us. Jesus, whom we killed, is the Messiah. Where do we go from here? What do you do? when the one who is supposed to come to save you is the one that you callously discarded and killed? Where do you go with that? And, and I can see it, I can imagine it in my brain, these folks who are saying it to Peter. What are we going to do? And the, the general concept I think they have is, are we done? Is this it? Is hell the only thing that's left? And Peter, Peter thankfully says to them, then Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remissions of sin and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. So if you remember way back in verse 21, he said to them, as he's reading this passage in Joel, he reads, and it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And he repeats that to them. He says to them, listen, repent. It's repentance. It's the same repentance that I told you about in the beginning of my sermon. Now that you understand it, you need that repentance. Yes, you killed the Messiah. But yes, the promise is unto you, verse 39. I made that, God made that promise to everyone. The promise to you as well. There is no sin that is so great that the Lord cannot forgive it, even the killing of your Messiah. 
Verse 40 then reads, and this looks back to 23 and 26. And with many other words that he testified, exhort, saying, save yourselves from this untoward generation. I find it interesting that Luke just basically said, this was his sermon, and he said some other stuff too. But I'm not sure, I'm not going to tell you what, or I'm not sure what. He said some stuff specifically probably to individual people, but it came to the point of save yourselves from this untoward generation. Israel was guilty of a terrible sin. And yes, Israel as a nation was going to be punished for what they had done. Israel was not going to get out of this. The Messiah who had come to save them, they had callously, wickedly killed. And the nation itself, they, couldn't, they weren't going to get past that right now. But, he says, each of you can individually still be saved, even if the nation isn't going to be. And of course, we know Rome comes in, AD 70, and it's only recently that the Jews have gone back to having a nation again. Lots of years from 70 until whatever year it was, 19-something, 1948, that, that the Jews became a nation again. Lots of years. Pick out any other nation in existence that has done that. From AD 70, when the Romans came in and stomped them flat. Let's face it. The Romans came in and stomped them flat. They destroyed them. They destroyed the temple. They destroyed Jerusalem. And they spread the Jews abroad at that point in time. And he says, listen to them. Individual Jews can still be spared. They can still repent. They would be part of the church and part of Israel. But the nation itself is doomed for the punishment that it richly deserves. Verse 41, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. So 41 and 42, we see 3,000 who were baptized displaying their identification with Christ, joining the fellowship of believers. And then we, we see this, act, this threefold activity. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching. That word doctrine there is teaching. And in fellowship, breaking bread and prayers. So they came together. They were taught and they prayed. And that's sort of the end of that.